Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's go back to our uh, discussion here. The goal tonight is to try and get through Acts 20. (laughs) Um, But what Paul does, he calls the Ephesian elders down. And we know from 1 Timothy, and you know, this is not a time to go into depth on that. 1 Timothy, Titus, the elders were men. They were the ones who were in charge of the church. And how were they selected? How, how, how how, How did you become an elder? You met the qualifications and you were not early on. You were appointed. Elders appointed other elders. And early on, Paul appointed the elders. Now that that's that goes in the face of our you know democratic mindset, right? Where we vote on somebody. We vote on a person to be an elder in, in leadership. But what's what's the dangers of voting on people? Favoritism. Favoritism. Majority may be wrong. Personality. Personality. Personality cults. Yeah. You don't always know unless you know people. I don't vote for people. Right. Because you don't know what they really like. One of the interesting things is, and I know this because I just went through it. <laughs> At Open Door, they've we've changed our board structure, and we have like a church life board and a leader and a church stewardship board. There's two boards. Um, the church stewardship board is like the old trustees, does the money, the budgets, and all that. And a church life board is the one that works with you know the the mission of the church, the ministries, things like that. And uh, it was totally changed around where there's, you know, a nomination process where you'd nominate people. And then those people would have to submit this somewhat lengthy questionnaire um, about what they believed and, you know, why would they want to be part of the board and, you know, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses and things like that. I mean, pretty, pretty in-depth application you had to go through. And then you got an interview (laughs) where they would interview you, where you were interviewed by people who had read over your application and, and, and that, and they would interview and ask you questions. Um, and then your name was brought up before the nominating committee consisting of people who are not going to be on a board, but who you know were plugged into the church for a long period of time. And they would hash it out and talk about all the different people that were nominated. And they came down with a slate of 10 people, five for one board and five for the other. But it was an appointed process. And the and, on the board? Yeah. There are. Really? Yeah, because it's not an elder board. It's not an elder board. Um, it's not the fun. It's the function is not of eldership. Um, so in that case, I'm okay with it. <laughs> but um, the, the the whole point is that, you know, when I got done with that whole thing, um, I said, you know, this is the first time that I felt that it was done right. The process was done right. Because it used to be, I don't know if you remember back, those of you who've been here, you remember what it was. You know, you get 12 guys and you have to vote on six for deacons. Well, I mean, they're either, 
you're either qualified for deacon or not. Right? But most people vote on name recognition. They vote on name recognition. Just like they do when they vote in colleges. You know, name recognition. Who... You know, and you might have a very qualified person, you know, and, and somebody who's a total dweeb, but they get on because everybody knows them. You know, everybody knows their name. They get a check mark. That's not the way it operated in the early church. You were appointed to this. And you were appointed. Another thing here, which is interesting, is the structure was changed around. Our board structure now is such that it's a one year renewable term. With no year off, you know, it used to be, you know, well, you're a deacon for three years, got to take a year off. Well, you know, can you tell that to your senior pastor? Well, you preach for three years, take a year off, preach another three. You know, I mean, you're either an elder or you're not. You're a deacon or you're not. You know, this idea of coming on and off and on and off is really not a biblical thing. Um, so it, it's really interesting what they did. They patterned a lot after what you see in the New Testament. And he, and he succeeded. He, I mean, it's a very. I was I was very much impressed with the process. Um, um, it was you have you felt like you had to run the gauntlet, you know. What's interesting, and here's is interesting thing. I've been on a lot of boards at the church, and I've never been asked until this time. I've never been asked. Well, do you believe in the Trinity? Do you believe in the deity of Christ? Do you believe, you know, what do you believe about giving to the church? What, what's your view on that? I've never been asked that. <laughs> no, the, the point, the point is, what's interesting is prior to this, this time, that's never been asked. You know, you could become a deacon. You could have a guy become a deacon in this church who didn't even know who the, the deity of Christ and, but he was known by everybody, and he's a nice guy, you know, in ministry a few years. He couldn't defend it, but, you know, hey. Leadership was held very high. There was a lot of qualifications for an elder, all right? And the reason that's necessary is because God knew that the church is only going to rise as high. If you've got bad leadership, that's that's like people, like, pre, like priests, like people, you know, and God wanted the best in leadership. And these were the top people. And there were a plurality of them. That's the other thing. Um, one of the difficulties I have sometimes with the smaller, what they call clan churches. You know what a clan church is? Everybody's related. You know, the clan runs the church, you know. And um, and, and some of the, 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 the black churches, um, you know, the pastor is king, you know, and nobody, <laughs> yeah, nobody crosses the pastor. You know, he's the one in charge of everything. All right. There's some of them. That, believe me, I, I know. It was interesting, you know, yeah, they're, they're, I, I see this more in, in the, in the, in the black churches in the, than the others. It's nothing disparaging of the, the race, but it's just that I've seen that in that, um, you know, in, in that, in your kind of churches where, you know, the, the pastor is the king. He, I had some ladies in, in one of my, my classes, um, and uh, they're, they're, they're like, I don't know, it's like three black ladies, I think it was. And uh, they were asking, well, why are you here? Well, our pastor told us to come to this class. 
you know, we were told to come here. You know, that's why they came because the pastor ran the church. Now that, by the way, that's in all churches, but, but that's one of my, um, you know, one of my experiences there. Um, there are churches where the pastor is king and that's not a, that's not a good model because in the early church, it was a plurality of elders. There were more than one. Um, there are checks and balances within there. Um, it doesn't mean that all had the same giftedness, right? You might have somebody who's who's gifted in preaching, where he does most of the preaching, and other ones maybe in caregiving and things. But they're all elders; they work together. They're all the leadership, and and that's the healthy model. Um, when you have one person running the church, you wind up what happens like in um, Third John, right? Where you've got Diotrephes who's throwing people out of the church because he's the one that if you cross Diotrephes, you're out. You know, and John has to write the letter in Third John to deal with that situation. That's a dictatorship, and that's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. What you see in the early elders, and Paul calls these Ephesian elders down to him. He wants to talk to them because he's on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to meet with them. And when they come to him, he said to them, "You know that from the first day that I came to Asia." In what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Testifying the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what's Paul telling them there? He said, I didn't, I didn't. I taught you everything, but what does he say? What, what's he telling them? What's he? What's he? What's he calling to their remembrance? What's he telling them to remember? Remember the way I lived. All right, folks. This is the most important thing to get out of this. You are what you live, not what you say. And in church leadership, God does not want a bunch of talking heads that can spout the right theology, the right doctrine, have the right verses, but whose lives are devoid of the truth. Christian leadership is all about character. It's all about character. And that's the one thing that differentiates Christian leadership from a lot of other leaderships. You know, in, in a business, what kind of guy do you want at the helm? You know, a guy that can make the business succeed, right? That's the kind of guy you want to lead things. In the church, it's not that way. The people you want to lead your church, the men who lead your church, have to be men of God whose lives model what they say. And Paul is telling these people, you've watched me for years. I didn't just bop into town and you take my word for it. You've observed the way I've lived. You deserve the way, you've observed the way I've acted. You've seen how I've been treated. You've seen me go through the good times and the bad times. You know what I'm all about. And I, I believe this. I, I firmly believe this. And that is generally the, the, the men who will impact um, a church most are the men who've been there for a long period of time 
and whose lives have modeled Christianity over the years. That's the men that that have an impact. You know, we, we live in a highly mobile society today where, you know, a guy comes into church for two years, he's your pastor, and he's gone to another one. And, you know, let me tell you something. You stop and think about the pastors in America that, that have the greatest impact. They're all men who have been at their churches for many years. Uh, MacArthur has been a grace community now for going on over 30 years. He started in 29, 69. He's hitting 40. 40 years at the same church. Now, what do the people in that church know about him? They watched him raise his kids. They watched him go through the good times and the bad times. Charles Stanley, how long has he been at his church? A long time. All right. The, the point here is, it's not that you have to be at a church. The point I'm trying to make is that the impact you have as a leadership is directly proportional to what people know about you and your character and have observed about your character. That's what lends um, power and authority to what you say. Because you can look them in the eye and say, don't do as I say, do as I do. And Paul is telling them, you guys know exactly what kind of person I was because you got to look at me up close for a protracted period of time and you know that I didn't hold anything back you know I declare to you the whole counsel of God I didn't pick and choose the things that were good you know what kind of leader is it who's always telling the people what they want to hear not a very good one right the man of God is going to give people what God displayed on his heart, not what they want to hear. Now, he's going to do it in a gentle, loving manner, but he's not going to hold back. And Paul is telling these people, he said, you've watched me for many years. You've seen my tears. You've seen the trial. You've seen what I've gone through to lead you. And you know that I've taught you publicly from house to house. My life has been an open book. All right. Um, and that's what a person of integrity is, right? What is integrity? Integrity is being in public, which you are in private and vice versa. That's what integrity is. And Paul says, you've seen me in public and in private. You've watched me. You know what my life is. In fact, the whole in Thessalonians, he, he really goes on long and hard on them saying, you watched me how I, you've observed how I lived and what I did. And he, in fact, at the end of First Thessalonians, when he's railing on those guys that are busybodies and are lazy, I think Second Thessalonians that are lazy and not doing their job, he says, you know, I didn't act like that. When I came to you, I worked. You watched me work. And he said, not only did I support myself, I supported other people that were with me. I didn't come into there to take advantage of you people. I didn't come in there to take your money. You watched me. And, and as elders, you want someone who, as an elder who is, has a sense of transparency, a level of transparency. It doesn't mean you know everything about your elder, right? But there's a level of transparency to him. You know, you can see his life. You can observe him. Because after all, he is a model of what you ought to be. That's, that's the point of an elder. 
Leadership in the Bible is all about character and all about being a model, not about what you know. Okay. How did Christ train the disciples? He tell them, um, okay, class starts at eight in the morning. We're out at noon. Have lunch. Come back at three to six, and then see you the next day. How did how did he train them? He lived with them. They walked around with him and watched him do the things he did. They watched him. And in fact, Paul and Timothy, he tells Timothy, you know my manner of life. He's talking to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you know what I'm like. Why? Because you walked with me. You watched me minister. You watched me in day-to-day -day activities. You saw me go through the good times and the bad. You know what I'm all about because you were there. And folks, we need to be models of godliness. We need to be a model. People need to be able to look at us and say, oh, that's what a Christian does. You know, most of the time, like, oh, that's what a Christian says. <laughs> that's bad, right? That's what a Christian does. And Paul is saying, you know, I, I kept back nothing from you that was helpful. I testified to Jews and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I preached the gospel to everyone. I wasn't one thing to one person and another to another. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He's saying, I'm, I'm compelled to go to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to happen when I get there. But I want to go there. The idea of being bound in the Spirit. So he had a strong, compelling desire from the Holy Spirit to go there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So the only thing I know is when I get there, I'm going to have chains and tribulations. Now, this is going to come up a little later on in, verse tw in chapter 21. But remember Agabus who told Paul that he was going to be bound? Prophesied to Paul saying, Paul, if you go up to Jerusalem, they're going to bind your hands. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people debate that and say, well, you know, was Paul, was Paul in the will of God when he went up to Jerusalem? Maybe he shouldn't have gone. I mean, Agabus told him, if you go up to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. But he always followed the spirit in him, so he I mean, what did Agabus tell him? If you go, you will be bound. Agabus did not tell him to not go, did he? No. He didn't say, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you not to go. <laughs> he said, the Holy Spirit told me that if you go, this is going to happen to you. But Paul knew that that was part of God's ordained plan. God, Paul was in the will of God. But none of these things move me. And I don't count my life dear to myself that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is interesting. Paul is saying, my, my mode of operation in life has been to finish the race. Finish it well. Yeah, you know, I, you, need, you need to ask yourself that, you know. When, when, you know, when, when the day comes and, uh, you're on your deathbed or whatever, and you look back and you say, you know, I did the best I could. I did the best I could. Or are you going to look back with regrets? You're going to look back and say, you know, I should have done this or I should have done that. Or, you know, and that, now there's, there's a real 
part here that no matter what you do, you can always do just a little better, right? Well, that's not that's not what we're talking about here. But Paul was able to say in Second Timothy, I finished the course. And by the way, whose course was it? It was the course that God laid out for him. By the way, don't run somebody else's race. Run your own. Find out what it is God wants you to do, and then you do that. And don't worry about what God's told someone else to do. That's their problem. You've, you've got a, a race to run. And Paul is saying, I want to make sure that I finish the race. Now, in what way would he not finish the race? What would cause him not to finish the race? What would cause you not to finish a race? <laughs> to give up, right? Sin might slow you down. Disqualification, right? I mean, Paul talked about this. I beat my body daily. Unless I preach to others, I might be disqualified. You can get disqualified in a race. There's a lot of ways to stop from finishing the race. Paul says, I want to make sure that whatever I do, I'm going to finish the race that God's laid out for me. That I would do what God's ordained for me to do. And he worked towards that. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. You're not going to see me again. I'm probably never going to see you guys again. Did he know these guys? Well, sure. Three years, right? They knew him. He said, I might, I might never see you again. And I'm going to testify to you this day. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In what sense is he innocent of the blood of all men? Right. He'd been telling them the truth. See, one one of the major responsibilities of the elder is to preach the gospel, the word of God, right? How as an elder can you become guilty of the blood of men? By not preaching the truth or by altering it. And by the way, um, there's a lot of people who want their ears scratched. You know how Robert Schuller has one of the biggest churches out in California? He did a survey. Did a survey. Asked people, what do you want to hear? And he gave them it. You can go to a big church. Tell people what they want. Paul's saying, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. In, which, in what way is he innocent of the blood of all men? It's because when he preached the gospel, he did not withhold any part of it. Now, he was not obnoxious about it. But he preached the whole counsel of God, the good and the bad. Now, one of the difficulties... And just as an aside, this is why I like expository preaching so well. Is because you got to preach all the verses. You can't skip over the ones you don't like. If you're a topical preacher, you can dive into the Bible anywhere and head off in a swim off in a direction. You get stuck in ruts. You know, you get stuck with your little pet things and the things you want. Paul's saying, I, 
There's no pet doctrines I have. I gave you the whole truth, all of it. And because that I'm innocent of your blood, I've not not said something to you that should have been said. And think about that when next time someone's preaching. You know, one of the one of the dangers in a lot of churches days, you're told we can't use the S word, sin, and don't talk about repentance. That's that's bad. You're you're hurting a person's self-esteem if you tell them they're a sinner. Don't don't use those words. And in the postmodern culture and the seeker-sensitive services that sometimes we have, it's things like repentance and sin and salvation are watered down. Instead of instead of getting the gospel, you get some hostess twinkie version. That's not the gospel. That's not the word of God. That's not truth. Until a person is willing to recognize that they are a sinner, they can't be saved. And if you're afraid to tell them that, you're not declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And I like the way one preacher put it. He says, you know, my job is not to cook the meal or to select the menu. My job is to get the dinner from the kitchen to the table without dumping it on the floor. He's saying God is the one who's gave us the message. God is the one who determined the menu. The sinner is at the table. My job is to get the dinner to the table and not mess it up along the way. And if they don't like what they eat, it's not my fault. See, that's one of our problems today. If people don't like what we say, we say, well, that's my fault. You know, I need, no, you don't need to water it down. Paul says, I didn't declare, I didn't shun to declare to you the whole gospel of God. I told you everything, the whole counsel of God, the good, the bad. I remember the joke told by uh, Vance Havner about the preacher who was a hellfire and brimstone guy. I always preached hellfire and brimstone. People in the church started getting tired of hellfire and brimstone every week, so the deacons went and said, you know, we're tired of this hellfire and brimstone. Why don't you preach on love? Pastor, oh, okay. You know, so the first Sunday he preached on, you know, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. The next Sunday he preached on love thy neighbor as thyself. Then the third Sunday, he preached on husbands, love your wives. And after that, the elders came and said, you know, we just as soon you go back and preach on hell. You know. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. One, one, of the, one of the difficulties that we have in our churches today is we have a smorgasbord mentality in the pews. People go to the churches... Not everybody, but generally people go to churches that preach and teach the things they want, the itching ears. The itching ears. And um, people don't like being told what they don't like to hear. And uh, one of the, you know, one, one of the things that you always have to ask yourself as a, as a pastor you don't want to be obnoxious to people, 
But you know what? Not many are called, right? Not many are chosen. Just because your church isn't the biggest one in the county doesn't mean you're not preaching the truth. In fact, you may be preaching the truth, and that's why they don't come. Your job is not to alter the message. Your job is to deliver the message as God proclaimed it, to not mess it up. And Paul says, I can tell you between me and my conscience, I did my very best to give you the whole counsel of God. And he says here, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Lord of what among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is one of the very important verses here. Take heed to yourselves. What, do you, what does he mean when he says take heed to yourself? Jesus is Lord. You are an under shepherd. It's his flock, not your flock. Okay. Yeah. And um, the other thing here, when you say take heed to yourselves, Paul even says that later on to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your ministry. And there's a warning there. And the warning is, those who are in spiritual leadership are have a great responsibility. And when they fall into sin, it does a whole lot more damage than the average person sitting in the pew. When the pastor commits an adulterous affair, it destroys a church. When a member commits an adulterous affair, it's an issue that needs to be dealt with, but it's likely not to destroy the church. And one of the, one, in fact, one of the requirements of an elder is that they not be made an elder too soon, lest they be fall into the snare of the devil. What was the snare of the devil? What did he? What was his trap? What did what? What he? Pride. Pride. There needs to be. You know, and and what Paul is saying here is, you guys, you watch yourselves, and why should you watch yourselves? Because you have such an impact on others. You know, we and, and one of the things in our American culture today is like, you know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. You know, as long as you're not hurting me, I don't care what you do for, you know, I don't care what your sexual orientation is or what you have for dinner or what, you know, just don't bother me. You know, you do your own thing, I do mine. Because after all, what you do doesn't affect me. Well, in church leadership, it does. What your pastor does, what your elders do, has an impact in your church. That's leadership, period, because my job, we go into this sexual harassment thing, mm -hmm. where the guy that's the program manager has been sexual harassing women on the job, and it's affected the whole company. Because <coughs> he has got an attitude with her, or whoever he's harassing, he got an attitude with everybody. Yep. And that makes everybody unproductive, tense, and, you know, upset all the time. Right. When you're in leadership, you have a you have a different standard. There's a different standard. Okay, and and what Paul is telling him here is, that you guys, be careful. Watch yourself. Take heed to yourself, because 
If you don't, what's going to happen? You're going to let your guard down. You're going to wind up like Peter, denying the Lord three times. And it happens. It happens. Does God, um, uh, you know, like, because they are, people are in leadership, or we're in leadership, uh, hold them more responsible mm -hmm. than a person who, you know, they, you know, come to church. And yeah. Absolutely, he does. Why is that? To whom much is given, much is required. Also, also, you gotta, you gotta understand the way, the way it works. You said something very true. Sin is sin. Is it more sinful for a pastor to commit adultery than in an eternal grand scheme of things? Is it more sinful for the pastor to commit a sin or for the church member to commit a sin? An eternal grand scheme of things, which is worse? They're equal. They're the same, right? Sin is sin, right? Adultery is adultery. Murder is murder. Lying is lying. In the eternal grand scheme of things, it's the same. However, in the temporal scheme of things, is there a difference? Yes. Because of the influence. All right. And when you look at, you know, quite honestly, what's, what's a worse sin in God's sight? Committing murder? Or stealing a bag of potato chips. As far as God's concerned, both are equally sinful, right? Yeah, both are equally sinful. From an eternal grand scheme of things, there is no difference. But from the temporal scheme of things, which one is worse? Murder, because you're affecting others. The effect is greater. And in the Old Testament, the capital offenses were those that, that struck at the stability of a culture, murder, adultery, idolatry, homosexuality, witchcraft. Those things destroyed a society, and those God ordained the death penalty. Not that they were worse sins than a lie eternally, from the eternal perspective, but they were worse in the sense of their effect on a society. And yes, God holds leaders doubly responsible. If you're in leadership, you are held doubly responsible because someone is looking at you. And that, that means that there may be things that you don't do, not because they're wrong or sinful, but because of the influence it might have on others. It's an issue of influence. And Paul is telling these elders here, you better watch your life because you are responsible to God for how you've managed or um, led his flock. Now stop and think about that. If you're in leadership, God holds you responsible for the way your leadership has influenced other people. And God is saying, here, Paul's telling him here, this is God's flock. This isn't your flock. This is God's flock. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, I can't remember what book it is, Zechariah, I think it is. Um, one of the, I think it's Zechariah, one of them, um, God God really goes after the leaders of Israel because they have destroyed his flock. He said, I made you rulers and you destroyed my flock. You went after my flock. And I can't remember offhand what the minor prophet is. But one of the minor prophets, one of the things that God is judging Israel for is the leaders who have destroyed the flock. Instead of protecting the sheep, they've taken advantage of the sheep. And by the way, that's another 
thing there. If you want to really find out how to spot a false teacher, go to Second Peter 2. You'll be able to pick them out. Second Peter 2. If you have a pastor who's more interested in his ego than he is in the church, he's got a problem. Yeah. If he's more interested in his money than the church, you've got a problem. And be quite honestly, and I don't take this the wrong way, but I will question any pastor that drives a Lincoln Continental or a Rolls Royce. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I. What if the huh? What if somebody give you a Rolls Royce? Huh? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Donate a Rolls Royce to you. I probably sell it. You don't need. You need to drive a two hundred fifty thousand dollar car around when you have missionaries who could use that money for something. I tell the church, give the money to the mission field. What? Look, folks. Why are you in the ministry? No, I'm, I'm, no, you're asking a very valid question. You're asking a very valid question, and, and I, it's an important one. You know, when you look at some of these people, pastors on TV that are in multi-million dollar houses and driving Rolls Royces and having private jets and things like that, you have to ask yourself the question, is there something rotten in Denmark? Because I think there is. All right. Uh, that is a rhetorical question. Because can you imagine Paul today, you know, driving around a Rolls Royce with on a private jet and a yacht and everything else? I don't think so. I don't think so. And it goes back to the character. Are you in it for the money? Are you in it for the prestige, the power? Do you have to have buildings named after you? Do you got to be the one in charge of everything? There's a problem there. Because what happens, the, the, the bigger your ego is, the less God can work through you and use you. And what Paul is telling these guys, watch yourself. Don't allow yourself to be sucked into the trap. Because if you don't, you've disqualified yourself from ministry. And not only have you disqualified yourself from ministry, but you brought yourself under judgment of God who's going to hold you accountable for the way you dealt with his flock. Because it's his flock. It's his people. And I think part of the warning of Christ in Matthew 6 is saying, you know, it'd be better for you to take somebody and put a millstone around their neck and drop them in the ocean than to offend one of these little ones who believe in me. God holds us responsible. And we are doubly responsible. And he says here, take heed yourselves into the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. What's the idea of shepherding there? Well, everybody in that day knew exactly what he was talking about. Sheep are the dumbest animal on the planet. They're the only animal that could be lost within a mile of their home and not know where they're at. And when they're lost, they walk around in a circle until they drop over dead. They can't feed themselves. They'll eat anything. And if the water's too noisy, they won't, they'll die of thirst right next to a brook because it's too noisy. They're afraid to go get the water. They're dumb animals. They're stupid. They need to be cared for. And the metaphor that God uses when talking about us as sheep, we need to be cared for. What is the job of the pastor? To care for the sheep. 
It's his job to care for them. Not to lord it over them. Not to fleece them. But to care for them. Because he is an overseer. God has ordained him as an overseer to care for them. And he says, which he purchased with his own blood. Um, how precious are the sheep to God? Pretty precious. And what, what he's trying to do there is trying to get them to understand the gravity of this. These are not just everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill people. These are people that God died for. They're extremely valuable. If something is extremely valuable, how do you treat it? A little bit different than something that's not valuable at all, right? You take care of that which is valuable. And Paul is telling these people, this flock of God is a very valuable thing because he purchased it with his own blood, which means that God is really concerned about how well they're treated. If something is very precious to you and someone is mistreating it, how do you respond? Yeah. He's going to go after him. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Here's the two major, here's two attack vectors. Paul says, I know that when I leave, what's going to happen? <laughs> You have wolves. Now, this is a metaphor drawn from that day and age where the job of the shepherd was to beat the wolves away. What did David have to do on a couple of occasions? A lion and a bear. And in fact, they had certain laws in those days. I don't know if you knew this. But, for example, if a lion attacked the flock and you were a shepherd, you had to rescue, even if it was a, a hunk of the foot of the lamb, you had to rescue that, take that from the lion so that you could prove that the sheep was killed by the lion and you didn't just sell the thing. I mean, this, this, your job as a shepherd was you had to beat away the predators. Now, what is one of the jobs of the pastor? He has to beat away the predators. Because they're going to come in from outside. They're not going to spare the flock. Now this is not this is not referring to people who have a slightly doctrinal slight doctrinal difference. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people that are pastors or or or, or false teachers that are going to cause damage to the flock of God. What is your responsibility as an elder to protect the flock, to warn them, to deal with those false prophets that come in? That's part of your job. That's part of your calling. What is it? Weed, feed, and lead, right? Weed, you got to weed the flock. You might have to deal with those that come in. And it's interesting that we have a, unfortunately, we have a church today that is intolerant of being told that there are bad people out there. I had a lady in one of my Sunday school classes. I was talking about Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin, two of the top false teachers on the planet. Both of them deny the deity of Christ. She Slammed her Bible shut, got up, walked out the door. And I asked her later on. I said, "You know, what, you know, what was that all about?" Well, she's she's donating money to these ministries, and she was upset that I dared 
say anything bad about them. I said, well, do you know what they really believe? No. Have you looked at what they've really written? Well, no, not really. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some information. So I went up and I dug up documented cases from their own words where they've denied the deity of Christ. They've denied, you know, major fundamental doctrines of the Bible. They're not Christian at all. And I gave them to her and I asked her about a month later, well, did you ever look? Oh, I don't have time to read that kind of stuff. So here, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to protect the flock and I got a sheep that wants to go and schmooze with the, with the wolf, you know. Um, look, that goes with it, you know. Part of the job of the pastor, the elders of the church, is to protect the flock from those things that come in that are going to destroy the flock of God. That's part of their job. And as a sheep, one of your responsibilities is to submit to that kind of protection. Now, again, what's, what's, our, what's our final authority in all of this? The Word of God, right? So if your pastor is, you know, there are some pastors that go too far, you know, and they're trying to lord it over the flock. That's not the kind we're talking about here. We're talking about whether it's bona fide doctrinal issues or errors. One of the things that amazes me, for example, um, that, that I was I was glad about is when this Da Vinci Code garbage hit. You know, it was great to see some pastors and some churches confronting this and telling their people about what's going on here. That's part of their job. You know, to confront error. You know, and to to protect their people. Because if they don't, they're responsible for the state of the sheep. And Paul's saying, I, I know that after I leave, there's going to be some guys that are going to, there's going to be some sex and some people are going to try to come in from the outside. But he said, you know, that's not, that's bad. They said, I also know that from among yourselves, there are going to be some people rising up to draw away the disciples. Who are these people? Split the church. Are there valid reasons for a church to split? Sure there are. You know, if all of a sudden the pastor says, well, the deity Christ thing's overblown, we're going to get rid of that. Time to go. You know, or split the church or get him out. But why did churches split for the most part? Church always splits if there's a leader that's involved. A leader that has the spirit of Absalom or Korah or something because the church always split by sheep and it's only caused by a leader standing up. Somebody who rises up. It causes a split. And what's it over usually? Fear. Is it over doctrine? No. It's over personality. Oh, you mean the most split? Most split. Proper split is over gross <laughs> doctrinal error or sin. That That's different. But probably point oh 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 one percent of church splits are that. Most of the churches, because, you know, somebody likes Joe Blow and they don't like Sam over there. And so they're going to go after him and not him. They're going to fight and split. And you have a split because it's personality. Because somebody wants the preeminence. All right. Now, here's here's a question. This is interesting. If someone wants the preeminence in the church, by definition, they're disqualified from leadership, right? That's a no-brainer. That is a no-brainer. If somebody is seeking leadership and, and wanting influence and all of that, 
watch out. <laughs> watch out. Because they're trying to draw away the disciples after themselves. They, they, want, they want some preeminence or they, they, want, they want their own little way. And that's not, that's not a godly person, folks. That's not a godly person. You know, it's interesting. Over the years, I've seen, I've seen this happen here and other places. And, you know, it's distressing when you, when you, when you say, you know, well, why did so-and-so leave the church? Well, they left the church because um, they were told they couldn't sing as much in the solos as they wanted to. I remember that one family left the church because they weren't allowed to sing the number of solos they wanted to sing. That's sort of stupid, isn't it? Why aren't you going open door? Um, they wouldn't let me sing a solo. Oh, that makes sense. I had another guy leave the church, and the reason he left the church because he wanted, we had at that time a legalistic bent, and the, the rule was you're not allowed to go see a movie. So he left open door because he didn't want to see a movie. He wanted to go see movies. He left a viable ministry that he was involved in at church because it was more important for him to watch movies than it was for him to minister. And, of course, whenever people leave, how do they usually leave? Mad, angry, vitriol, loudly. loudly. Folks, understand this. This is not your church. <coughs> Pretend you're all going to open door. This is not your church. This is God's church. It's not your reputation. Whose reputation is it? It's Christ. And when you leave the church noisily, causing all kinds of ruckus on the way out because you didn't get your way or your view or whatever, you're an ungodly person. doesn't mean that, you know, if you become uncomfortable at open door, you can't go somewhere else. That's fine. You know, God may call you to a different church. That's okay. Just go there. You know, go to another place of worship. But what you have in churches today is a lot of diatrophies who want it their way. And when they don't get their way, there's health pay in the church. And usually it winds up with church splits or disgruntlements. And you know what? That gives, understand something, that gives Christ a bad name. That gives Christ a bad name. It's not you. You're representing Jesus Christ. Do you want do you want to be known as the person who made your church look bad in the community because of the way you acted? Say, I know that within you there's going to be some people rising up. And usually within the church, it's a personality thing. Now, you might have a wolf rise up, right? Somebody who falls into doctrinal error. I don't think that's really what Paul has in mind here, although there are those that do. He's talking about personality fights. And what church was known for that? Corinth. I'm a Paul. I'm a Paulus. I'm Cephas. Well, I'm Christ. We're the Christ group here. And Paul says, what, what's going on here? Who are you following? I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you people, lest they have a Paul cult in the church. It's not about Paul. It's not about Peter or Christ. This is God's church. And he's saying, you gotta, you got to watch this. They'll, they'll speak perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves to gain a following. 
Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. This was a warning constantly by Paul. I warned you every chance I got. Watch out for this. This is, still the Ephesus. this is Ephesus. Oh, that's the one I left there for a mm -hmm. How come the warning was so like you hear about it then, but not really now? Why is that? Because I'm thinking about the, the warning is so strong here, but then the Bible says in the last days people will turn away doctrine of the devils, favor. Why do you think that? Why, why do you think? Why do you think that the church in general today, not not every church in particular, but the church in general, has such a, a, a high toleration for doctrinal division? A lot of them don't know the word themselves, but I think the, the issue is, is we're talking about the culture has eaten into us. And what is the culture of today? The culture of the day is all of us have an equally valid and acceptable opinion about everything. And the idea of deferring my rights to someone else is not something that's really seen as a virtue. <coughs> it's not seen as a virtue. It's seen as, as, as weakness. And so what we have is we have a lot of people in the churches who want to run things their way. You know, they can go to Burger King and get it their way. They can go to McDonald's and get it their way. They go to church, and they're told the way they're supposed to like it. And they don't like that, and they want it their way. And this happens. I did, And it's interesting. You know, I did back in my days when I had singles class, I did a survey. I had a lot of people griping about the class. It's okay, let's do a survey. I just want to see what people are thinking. I got like 50 of them back. And one of them, you know, I, I taught for 45 minutes back then. They didn't like that. They wanted it shorter. Some did. And they were very vocal about it. And so I, I put it to class. What do you think? Well, wouldn't you know it that half the people thought it was too short, half the people thought it was too long. So who do you please? Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm illustrating, you know, what I'm, I'm illustrating the point that no matter what I did, some people like it, some don't. You can't make everybody happy. And I remember, it's interesting, Pastor Walls said one time, one to the leadership, he says, he says, statistically in every church, statistically, there are 10 people that are, 10% of the people are leaders. 10% of, of the people gripe about everything. And there's 80% of the people in the middle that go with the flow. And he says it's such, he says he doesn't know how it works, but it's so statistical that if you took the 10% of the gripers out, lined them against the church wall and shot them all dead, next week there would be 10% of the people that don't like you. They don't go away. <laughs> He's saying, you know, it's laugh. He's saying no matter what you do, 10% of the people will never like what you're doing. So what do you do? Do you lead from the 10% or do you lead from the word of God? See? You lead from the word of God. And, and our society, the problem with our society is it engenders the mindset of, I don't want to call it discontent, of rugged individualism. You know, and to have somebody actually say, this is right and this is wrong, we don't want to hear that. 
One said, well, that's good. That's a good spin for you. But my idea is this and this. Now, you bring that into a church where you have a whole bunch of people determining for themselves what they think is right and wrong and who are not able to submit to leadership. You've got problems. That's America, though. That's America. We found on a bill of rights, individual rights. I mean, that's. that's but, 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 the, but, but what it's done in our society, it's gone so far. You know, um, our kids generally, our kids raised today to respect their elders and authority? No. Nope. In my day, in my day, my we had a rule at my house that if I got paddled by the teacher, I get paddled at home, no questions asked. Now, I never got paddled by the teacher. I'll tell you that. 12 years of school, never once paddled. No. Huh? huh? Just the bus driver. Yeah. Never once. But the rule was, you get in trouble at school, you're in trouble at home. No questions asked. The assumption was this teacher was right. Now, in fourth grade, I actually had a teacher that wasn't right. And it was interesting. My mom was over visiting a common friend, and this lady didn't know my mom was my mother. And she said, she was telling this friend, said, I hear I got this Alan Schaefer kid in my class. I'm going to really have fun with him. She had it in for the Schaefer's. Um, but she didn't know my mom was a Schaefer. My mom was listening to this. So she she was saying how she was going to make my life miserable. She did. So that was the only case where there was a discon disconnect, you know, between the teacher and mom. But every other grade, that's the way. Now, what happens today? You touch my kid, I'm going to sue you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the whole point is people, kids are not taught respect for authority. They're not taught respect for society. They're not taught respect for people's property. You know, and it's, it's an endemic thing. The rugged individuals. And Paul's talking about that kind of thing here where you've got people in a church that don't know how to appropriately submit to the leadership of the church. Should you submit to the leadership of your church? Yes. That doesn't mean it's, it's not talking about blind obedience. That's not what it's talking about. It, it, nowhere does the Bible talk about blind obedience or blind loyalty. But the Bible does say that one of the things that I, as a, in this church, I am responsible to follow the leadership of the church. That's my responsibility as a believer, as a member of this church. If I can't do that for some reason, what should I do? Leave and go somewhere else. That's fine. But don't cause ruckus here. Don't, don't cause division here. Find a place where you can worship. The Bible, the Bible has a lot of tough things to say about people who do not submit to God's ordained leadership. Look at David. What kind of leader was Paul, Saul? He was a bad one, right? And what did David know? He was God's anointed king. David knew that someday I'm going to be king. Now, the average person, average Christian today was in David's shoes, would have killed Saul, right? Mm -hmm. What did David do? Touch not the Lord's anointing. Let God deal with him. God will take him. My responsibility is to submit to God's leadership and, and let God worry about removing that. It's an appropriate response to leadership. What do you do with 
pastors that have a problem with you leaving their church. You know, they try to blackball you when you leave their church. Well, that's, that's a spiritual problem. Stuff. That's a that's a that's a spiritual problem on their part. Don't let it bother you. No, I understand. <laughs> I understand. But My response is, oh, they are. Why do they do that so crazy? Well, by definition, then they become disqualified as pastors. They shouldn't even be a pastor, right? Now it's different if you know you were disciplined out of the church for gross sin. But that aside, if you know, how dare they not come to my church and think I'm the greatest pastor on the planet? I'm going to make them pay for that. That's ego. That they shouldn't be the pastor. You know, he said, you know, God takes, look, God takes unity in the church very seriously. Very seriously. And in fact, one of the things the Lord hates, you know, the seven things that are abomination to him, he that sows dissension among the brethren. God hates that. He despises that. If you are showing dissension among the believers, you are in serious opposition to God. All right? Don't do that. Don't go there. And Paul's saying you're going to have the wolves from without, the people splitting from within. And I warned you day and night for three years about this. And you know what? We need to warn our people about this today because we live in a society that is intolerant of black and white. They're intolerant of that. And if they don't get it their way, they run off bawling to some other place to get it the way they want. But we can't kowtow to those people. You can't run your ministry submitting to the 10% that won't like anything you do. It ain't gonna, you're gonna ruin your, you're gonna go bananas trying to deal with them. Do what God has called you to do. Work with the 10% of the people that are on the program, and the 80% in the middle will follow. But you're always gonna have some people that just don't want it. That's, that's part of ministry. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, who is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What is Paul saying? Paul saying, I have done my part now. I've done, I've preached to you the whole counsel of God. I've done everything I can. You're not going to see me probably after today. So all I can do is commend you to God to take you the rest of the way. Because I'm not there to help you. The word of God can, can do what I'm not able to do. I, I he, this is Paul turning them over to the leadership of the, el, the elders, over to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Word of God, and just saying, I'm not going to be there to help you, but God will be. I commend you to God and to His Word, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance. And in verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, yourselves know that these hands are provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. This is a general operative principle. Those who are in church leadership who are godly are not wealthy people. They're not. They're not coveting someone's gold or silver or apparel. What was the gold, silver, apparel? Well, that was the medium of exchange in those days. 
so when you have the account of Frederick K.C. Price that got a Rolls Royce given him by his congregation and made him take it back because he didn't like the color, that guy is immediately disqualified as a, as a elder, leader, pastor, disqualified. Because he's more interested in the money, the wealth, the prestige, the power, the accolades than he is about his job. And what is his job as a pastor? To lead and feed the flock of God. And Paul is saying, in fact, in Thessalonians, Paul said, you know, I have a right to be supported by you. Right? I have a right as an apostle to receive your support. But I've decided to not do that so that no one could say I'm in it for the money. That doesn't mean that you keep your pastor in threadbare clothes, driving a rusty Volkswagen, eating you know, bread and water. That's not what it's talked about there. But you need to. You need to honor your pastor and take care of your pastor. But, you know, we all know in our society that that can be taken too far. When you've got pastors in Rolls Royces and Lincoln Continental and Cadillacs and 500, you know, $800 suits with gold rings on their fingers and talking, you know, on and on and on. That's that's not what that's not what the Christianity is all about. That's not what it's about. And Paul says, you, you know how I worked to provide for my necessities. And I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said it's more blessed to give than receive. Now that's something that don't, doesn't go over too well on TBN, right? What did Paul say? If you... He goes back. So if, if your church gives you a Rolls Royce, sell and give it to the poor. Care for the weak, right? Care for those that are less fortunate. It doesn't mean that you know you go into poverty yourself, but it means that you care for those. There, there, there there's a level of, of, of a lifestyle that we can live within comfortably that's fine. When you go above that, you're you're there's something wrong. She didn't believe the gospel. That's different. Yeah. That's that's the rub. That's the rub. That's the rub. That's the rub. And he says, uh, what did Christ say? It's more blessed to give than receive. It's more blessed to give. If you're always gimme, 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 more, 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 there's something wrong. That's not that's not a man of God. That's not a man of God. And when he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. They all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorry most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So this is Paul's charge to them. And what's he telling them? He's telling them, you know what? God has given you a great responsibility to the flock of God. It's his flock. It's his sheep. You better make sure that you wake up every day and look in the mirror and say, this is not my church. This is God's church. And I'm going to be held responsible for how I conducted my ministry there. You're not in it for the money. You're not in it for the wealth. You're not in it for the fame and the fortune. 
You're in it because God's called you and given you responsibility. And dealing with sheep is a tough, messy, ugly business. I did more preaching tonight than teaching. But. Any comments or questions before we before we leave? Any comments or questions or anything? All right, well, let's see. Next week I will have, I will pass out your final exam. And you can turn it in the week after. And we'll have pizza the week, the last week. So, all right, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this night, for being here and being taught from your word. Help us to remember what we've gone over and to ponder it in our hearts. And I pray, Father, for those of us in here who may be in leadership, that we would remember it's your flock, not ours. It's your church, not ours. This doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you. We're just under shepherds who are going to be held responsible for the way we've handled our ministry. And for those of us who may not be in ministry, I pray that we would submit responsibly to those in leadership over us to understand that they're doing your work and that we should respect them and honor them and not cause dissension because it's your church. It's your testimony. It's your name that's at stake. Help us to remember this, Father. We thank you for this time together in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.